going to roll here now. Some of my, my, my best clients, Ken, this is what they're doing is, is they're going, what are the inroads? What's the first thing that an electric car needs um, in terms of service and repair? And you know what? Tires. And so what they're doing is they're putting together tire and rim packages. Um, they're researching what, what you know, the fitments and stuff like that, tire rim packages, and having those available to market to Tesla owners or to other EV brands that are out there. They're, they're learning, and this is something that, you know, when it comes to the technology part, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it. I try to keep up, but because I'm so busy on the management side, I get left behind every once in a while until I do some reading. So I found out just within the last six months that the tires made for electric cars are different than other tires because... Welcome. Joining me on today's EV-friendly podcast is Murray Voth. Murray is one of Canada's leading experts in business development of the auto repair and maintenance sector. Murray is a business coach and trainer and offers a number of online and in-person training sessions across Canada through his RPM network. Murray, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for inviting me, Ken. It's great to be here. Uh, well, let's get right into it. Um, why don't you uh, talk about some of the types of trading that you offer and, and, and the other uh, coaching services? Uh, sure. And then also, why do you think it's important for independent repair shops to, uh, uh, to, to take training? Sure. Well, um, my first sort of entry-level course, or I guess I'll call it a boot camp, is my SMART course. It's, um, it's 24 hours of training. It's three days when we do it live in person, or it's uh, eight three-hour sessions online live. And it's um, basic automotive shop management and service advising and service management training. I have another business course, which is um, some of my clients will say it's accounting for automotive shop owners, and some of them will say it's accounting for dummies. <laughs> um, I had to learned the hard way back in my early years in business. And, um, and so I've, I've created a way of looking at income statements, balance sheets and things like that, and helping people connect, uh, connect those numbers to their behaviors. So that's my business uh, course. And then I have mastermind groups. Uh, we've now grown to five groups of, uh, close to 10 shops each. Uh, we meet monthly and we go through the numbers in a composite. So it's a tool that they all enter the numbers in the same way. It's a, a cloud-based app so that we can compare apples to apples, right? In terms of KPIs, shop to shop and things like that. And they can they can grow that. Um, there's odd things that I do for people. I know I've done some Salesforce training for different parts companies. Um, you know, as long as it's related to the aftermarket, you know, I can usually provide a service or, or provide content. Now the importance of it, you know, we, we are talking aftermarket here, but when we talk about our competition, I always tell my clients that, the main competition we have is the new car dealership network and the manufacturers. So, for example, you know, I'm not worried about, for my clients, I'm not worried about the other independent down the street, or I'm not worried about, you know, one of the other franchises that's out there. Really, the new car network is our main competition. Now, if we look at some of the positive things they do, because they are known for some challenging behaviors, but some of the positive things they do is they have something called Dealer 20 Groups. They've been meeting together in groups of 20 dealers for decades. 
um, you know, and they use a composite as well. Um, back in the day, it used to be spreadsheets. I don't know what they're using these days. Um, they, even though they're competitors, they advocate for each other. So they join associations, right? So they have new car dealers associations and things like that. We, of course, in the aftermarket have, you know, your, your organization that we're, I'm a member of, Automotive Retailers Association. We have, you know, other provincial bodies. We have the Automotive Industries Association. But we really never got together and lobbied the way the, the new car dealers have, right? So I think this is an opportunity to get the word out to, you know, to join all of our associations and do that. Now, in terms of why is it important, um, majority of my clients, the shops that I work with, are founded by former technicians turned shop owner. They're very smart people, very hardworking people. But they go into business, and a few years in, they're not getting the results that they thought they would get. Their, you know, their profitability is not there. Their productivity, their efficiency is not there. And so that's where we come in. Myself and I have another coach now, Don. We come in and we bring the training and the coaching to get them. So basically, we're turning technicians into business owners, so that they look at it that way, right? Um, you know, they wake up in the morning to achieve gross profit and net profit. They don't wake up in the morning to fix cars. Right, the, the mindset is, is different. Yeah, right. So it's fair to say that they they have a passion for their work. They have a passion for the industry. They just don't have the business acumen. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, some of them do. Some of them have have taken college courses. Some of them come from business families. Um, you know that where they've been brought up in a business. They've been taught basic bookkeeping and basic accounting. But for the most part, you know, they have a dream. They're really good at what they do. And somebody in their family says, "Well, you should go work for yourself." And then away. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about that because they are called independent for a reason. Um, I, I know that you do a lot of training for the corporates, for the Canadian tires, and and uh, and that. Uh, but I think in BC alone, there's about over 2,400 independent shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They're independent for a reason. But could you comment on what is the value of having the independent repair industry as opposed to just having corporations? Yeah. Again, just to clarify a little bit, my work is primarily with independents, with some corporate on the side. <laughs> um, in the independent sector, some of them are part of what are called banner programs. Um, so it's not a franchise; it's more of a branding, a branding portion. Um, the The benefit of the independent, I think, primarily is the relationship with the driving public, with the client. Usually, you are dealing directly with the owner, or at most, you're one layer away from the owner. You're with a service advisor who that reports to an owner, right? Maybe in some larger independent shops, you might have two, three layers, but the owner is pretty much available for the most part. If you know, So there's that connection with ownership. When you take a look at the, some of the bigger franchises and or the corporate stuff or the dealer, you know, you're multiple layers away from the decision makers, right, when you're dealing with that. So I think there's one huge benefit of that hands-on uh, feeling, I think they can they can pivot faster when it comes to making changes and adapting to what's going on in the industry. Uh, the ones that are are aware of what's going on, taking training, are part of coaching, whether it's with me, my competitors, or other people that do what I do. Um, you know, they can pivot a lot quicker than, than corporate and dealerships can in terms of responding to the marketplace. So I think those are some of the big benefits right there. Is uh, is there um, uh, more emphasis to other relationship building? Um, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to have a relationship if for with a corporation, but with your local independent, they get to know you, they get to know your car. Is there a value in that as well? A hundred hundred percent. This it's back to the 
the and I know you know this whole medical thing in our country is, is up for a huge discussions. There's all kinds of stuff going on right at the moment in the news, but it's back to the the having your family doctor that you've known for 20 years. You know, the the patient is the car, the owner, you know, is the client. Um, but it's that repeat visit. We know the car, we know the preferences, <clears throat> you know, we know their families. We respond accordingly that way. So I, I think that's a huge benefit. And there is research in the past. This goes back, um, I'm going to say pre-pandemic, but the research I think still holds. North America-wide, almost 60% of the driving public in surveys of what they want in their service experience, 60% say the top priority is they would like a relationship with the shop that they go to. So the independence, the independence will going to lead the way on that. Hand, hand over a fist. It's it's, uh, it's really about building trust, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, so for uh, uh, for the consumer side, if they don't already have uh, an independent mechanic that they take their car to, uh, I think in this day and age of this technological upheaval, uh, it's certainly not like the days of the past where you could you know put your ear down to something and listen to it and diagno- uh, diagnose mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, we need a lot more out of our independence. Uh, if you're a consumer and, and you know, you, you want to take a car to an independent, maybe you don't want to take it to a new car dealer or corporation, what should you be looking for uh, to selecting somebody? Oh, that's a fantastic question, Kim. The first thing that I want to make sure that everybody listening who owns a car needs to understand is that you can legally take your car to any proper shop. They've got a business license. They've got licensed technicians, and they can look after your brand new car and maintain your warranty. So you do not need to take a car to the new car dealer to maintain it, right? Brand new, you drive it off the lot, whenever brand new bought, and your first service can go straight to an aftermarket independent shop, and you can legally maintain that warranty. So that's the first thing everybody needs to understand is that you have choices at where to take your car. The second thing is look at what their warranty is. Uh, The leading shops, the better shops, are offering you know, two-year, 40,000 parts and labor warranties on the majority of the things that they do to your car. There's a few exceptions, of course, with a couple of electronic items, but for the most part, two-year, 40. I've got clients that have gone to three-year, 60 um, with warranty uh, on your part. So that, you know, as a consumer, how do you know that a part is good? You don't have the expertise to decide between the quality of one item or another, but that shop is going to back it up with the warranty. The other part is, is ask if they do digital vehicle inspections, DVIs, where they can send you, um, you know, digital pictures in a report to your phone, to your computer, and you can actually see what the technicians are seeing. That is the leading edge shops uh, are doing that. There's no additional charge for it. It's, it's always built into whatever their service packages are, their service rates. So there's nothing extra about that. Um, and that gives you a huge opportunity for transparency about your vehicle and, and communication. The other thing I would say, one last thing, and then I'll give it back to you here, Ken, is when you go to their website, as you search for, you know, car repair near me or mechanic near me, whatever you're searching for, um, see if they have a, an option to, to make an appointment request through their website or online. Um, not everybody wants to do it online, but if they have that request there, you don't have access to their scheduler per se, but you could at least click on the button, put in your information, and send them off an email. That tells me that shops like that are now, again, have had training. They're keeping up to date with what most consumers are looking for for communication. 
you know, the idea of actually phoning a shop today and being put on hold and waiting to talk to a service advisor, those days are gone. Whereas if I'm busy, you know, I can do a little appointment request. They can email me back and say, sure, Mr. Voss, we can get your truck in on, on Friday at nine. We set it all up and then I show up there and it's just so much more convenient. So, you know, we're not trying to eliminate the personal touch. We're just trying to use technology to enhance the first touch. Yeah, well, speaking on, uh, uh, segueing into that, um, marketing. Um, yes, the old days, all you maybe needed was a yellow page ad or, or, or a sign outside your shop. Uh, we're living in a different world. Uh, where do you think a lot of shops or independents are going wrong on that front? Um, I don't even think it's good enough just to have a website. I don't think that's working. What, what, <laughs> what advice would you give for them? The reason I'm laughing, Ken, is, is, is you probably remember the days of the yellow pages that had a a a a a automotive so that they so that they were at the top of the listing <laughs> right yeah you don't see that so, as much anymore exactly so uh, several key things and and again we're talking to both shop owners and and clients and consumers in this podcast um you know several things one is if you know they should have a website it should be uh mobile friendly i know there's other terminology for that but it, it adapts to any size of a screen um, the the uh, phone number on a desktop should be on the top right of the view of the client so that it's right there. It just has to do with research on how our eyes use a screen. Um, on the mobile device, the phone number should be at the very top, and it should be hyperlinked. I should be able to tap it with a finger and have it dial you that way. Uh, again, a an appointment request button on that website is really important as well. The second thing is the Google Business Profile is using that Google business profile, you know, keeping it up to date, uh, using it to interact with Google and with, with the driving public. Because, you know, for as much as we talk about, you know, big, bad Google um, on the one hand of things, the other hand of things is Google is into it for the user's experience. Their algorithms and their AI and their engineers are watching how people use Google, right? And so then they reward shops let's use shops, that's who we're talking to here. They reward shops with free SEO, right? Search engine optimization, if the website and the Google business profile is easily interactive by the client. So in other words, if it takes too long to load, the client moves on, they move to the next one, right? And Google knows that. So they reward shops that load quickly with better SEO. So, right. you know, keeping your people up to date. I have to tell you, Ken, during COVID, um, you know, I had learned about the Google Business Profile already prior to COVID. I was already actively using it for my business and actively coaching it with a few people. We hit that thing hard in COVID to communicate the policies, the shop policies, and are we open or what are we doing and how are we handling it? And um, most of my clients made it through the pandemic with very healthy business, net profits and stuff. And there was other people I talked to who didn't, who suffered for two years, and I found out that one of the key things was they didn't use the Google Business Profile. Right. So the other thing I noticed during the uh, during the COVID time was the use of social media. Yeah. Uh, because I, I think a lot of the independents are maybe more older school and they're not that savvy on social media. But that could be a, a, a powerful tool. And and uh, and uh, I know several even of our, our of, uh, EV repair, uh, EV friendly uh, repair facilities are very active in engaging those communities. The, yes, she's answering their questions on social media. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, that could be very time-consuming as well. Uh, is it advisable to farm that out or 
Yeah. So I have a, a really good client who said to his peers in his group, um, he says, you guys are good at the media. He says, you're not very good at the social. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're putting out posts on a regular basis and stuff like that, but they're not engaging with their business page or even on their personal notes. So like you said, and I know that he is actively engaged on, you know, EV groups, right? Um, there he's part of a four by four club on, on a social media platform. He's, he's part of a young dads of that town, right? So with the town where he lives, he's part of a young parents association and they disc they discuss parenting challenges. You know, he's part of, uh, uh, a hunting club cause he likes hunting. He's part of a mountain, uh, quad club and he interacts sincerely on the basis of those interests. But as people get to know him. They begin to ask him questions about his business, what he does, and he gets a lot of a lot of appointments out of that, uh, in a very transparent sort of service type of a way. Now he's very active. That does take time. You know, he figures he spends about two hours a day on that, but his marketing budget is very very small. You can farm out the media part easily and effectively to small agencies. You know, some of them are as low as four or five hundred a month, um, and they can do you know send them some content. They can do the posts and all that kind of stuff. I've hired somebody just in the last um, I'm going to say six months, and it's effective. If these people know what they're doing, you have the right agency. Uh, it is it is really really effective, and they can do things that you know you don't you might not be comfortable with in terms of using all these platforms. So yeah, right. But as you said, it can be a cost effective means of uh, oh. marketing. Yeah. So I, I do want to turn to to technology, uh, electric vehicles, but but also to the automation. Um, what is your advice to many of these independents, uh, even some of the ones that are older? Um, can you ignore it? Or is this something that you say, look, you can't ignore this. Uh, you need to get on this. And if they do, what do they need to do to start preparing for this? I've been I've been asked this a lot in the in the last several years. So um, my first answer is run your business, operate your business like a business professional. Understand sales, margins, gross profit, managing your expenses. Understand at least some of the basic key performance indicators, things like uh, efficiency, productivity, uh, sold hours per technician per day, right? Things like that. Understand all of that and run that business. When you're running your business properly, then when challenges and or opportunities come your way, then you can be prepared. So let's say, for example, you hear about the whole hybrid thing, which has been around for a while now, and you say to yourself, oh, um, hybrid's on its way. There's some hybrid courses for my, for my people. I'm going to invest money in training for hybrid because I see it coming down the pipe. Because they have profits and they have a budget for training, they can take, they could be early adopters as a shop owner, right? Um, obviously, you know, a lot of cool things are happening in British Columbia right now, uh, at BCIT through EV friendly, through the ARA, um, training courses are now becoming available, right? There's a lot of people I know, but taking some great classes at, uh, at BCIT, but prior to this being available, I had clients that were flying to Boston, Massachusetts three or four years ago, pre COVID to get hybrid training from a guy that specialized in, in there, but they had the money to do it. So then, you know, along comes the EV whole process and, you know, we're watching, you know, the, uh, the adoption of it. We're watching the, uh, supply chain issues with it. We're looking at the grid and the power issues that are, that are coming along with that. Um, we're looking at, um, 
a whole shift in how people drive. You know, restaurants and, and, and food chains are now looking at setting up kiosks at charging stations so that you can grab a wrap while you're charging your car, right? There's a, there's a new way of looking at that whole piece. And I think just owners, owners of shops that are willing to invest in training, invest in people, listen to what's happening, you know, understand their marketplace to a degree. There is information available from different sources about how much percentage of cars are in your marketplace. You know, for, for a shop owner who is in, in uh, White Horse, you know, huge cold weather climate, uh, electric vehicles don't always do the best in the wintertime there. So chances are there's going to be not a ton of them in the next few years there. But Vancouver, you can stop at a stoplight in Vancouver and be completely surrounded by one brand of electric vehicle, right? Uh, and so, yeah. yeah. So on that note, because yeah, I'm on a roll here now, some of my, my, my best clients can, this is what they're doing, is, is they're going, what are the inroads? What's the first thing that an electric car needs um, in terms of service or repair? And you know what? Tires. And so what they're doing is they're putting together tire and rim packages. Um, they're researching what, what you know, the fitments and stuff like that, tire rim packages, and having those available to market to Tesla owners or to other EV brands that are out there. They're, they're learning, and this is something that, you know, when it comes to the technology part, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it. I try to keep up, but because I'm so busy on the management side, I get left behind every once in a while until I do some reading. So I found out just within the last six months that the tires made for electric cars are different than other tires because the cars are heavier, right, Kent? Yeah, that's so absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, so now I'm hearing stories of people who are selling tires to an EV and the customer's coming back, it doesn't sound right or it doesn't handle right, and that because the shop didn't know. But, you know, circling back to marketing, you know, one of the things that shop owners who are new to it or not that comfortable with social media marketing is they're always looking for content, and that's content, right? Talk about the changes. Talk about the technology. Talk about your interest. You know, when you, when you get a set of those tires in, you know, maybe take a picture of the tread or the profile. Um, maybe if you're taking a tire off like that, maybe take a hacksaw and cut it in half and look at the, the you know, how that tire is built versus a regular tire, how it's built. And talk to people about that, that opportunity. Um, but the other part of it is, is people have been, um, you know, initially when there was talk of EV, you know, oh my goodness, it's going to, you know, we're going to lose all this business because there's no internal combustion engine moving parts and all things like that. I do think it's going to, you know, you're going to need a few more cars than you did. You know, there's going to be less work per car. But some of the things that people aren't talking about is, is the suspension. So you have a car now that's 10% or 50% heavier than the existing model because of the battery. I might be using, you know, I want to be careful about what percentage, but it is a, you know, two on a truck, it's 2000 pounds on a car. It's like 500 pounds more. Right. Um, and so now your suspension, and the the thing for the consumers that are listening to this is, is you might think that because it's an electric car, and it doesn't need oil changes, you might make the assumption that it doesn't need to be serviced, and, and that can't be further from the truth. At a minimum, in weather like the Lower Mainland, that car should be have a full inspection, wheels off inspection, inspecting the brakes inspecting the, the steering components of the ball joints and everything like that, make sure that they're safe and things like that, and then replace them as they wear 
as soon as we get a bit further north, if I think of some clients of mine at Prince George that are getting into this, um, what they're finding on both hybrid and EV is with the uh, regenerative braking. So again, regenerative braking is when you use the electric motor uh, to slow the car down rather than actually using the brake pads to slow the car down. And it recharges the battery as you, as you use that to slow down. Um, and they're finding that with the regenerative braking, the calipers and the, the braking system due to the, you know, the winter rust and corrosion and the salt and stuff, those systems are not braking properly in, in the, you know, once, once they've got all salted up and corroded, they're not working properly. And so it's inspecting and servicing those brakes. So the opportunity for a shop is there is great, and the, the information for the consumer is, is that you still need to have that thing looked at. I, I think both. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it really is educating and, and uh, marketing that out and positioning yourself as a leader in this industry. Mm-hmm. I, I would also say I think the one thing, too, about, um, about the tires is no matter how far down we go down this technological rabbit hole, to maybe cars are just driving themselves one day. They'll always need tires. Yes. And I don't really see tires advancing too much beyond how they're made. Well, well. there's been a few YouTube videos I've seen recently of airless tires that, that some of the brands are experimenting with. Oh, um, it is. Similar to like the Martian Rover, uh, some of those space tools that they have out on other planets and on the moon, they can't yeah. have air in the tires for whatever reason, so they've created other things. They'll um, need tread. Yes, they're going to need tread, right? So that's always going to be an opportunity to to have that car to come in for a visit. Um, and even and even the even the you know you talk about maybe autonomous uh, that seems to have faded a little bit from how the big hullabaloo of about five six years ago. Um, but uh, and then the, the ride sharing you know was going really really big. We had uh, a bunch of different brands, and now we're down to I think at BC we're down to Moto and. Um, Evo, I think, yeah. um, that way. But, um, you know, the, the I've got aftermarket shops, independent shops that have contracts to service the Evos or to service the uh, the Motos. And so, you know, they're part of that network of uh, that thought process, right? Of, so, right? So as soon as you get a Moto that's now self-driving, if you, you know, if you're servicing the existing Motos, then that'll be a natural lead into servicing the self-driving Motos, right? If, if that's something that's even come to when, when you have a, a car that can drive itself, servicing becomes even more important. You better make more employee cars. Uh, and and easier because now you don't have to work around a client's schedule. Now you could just program that car to come into your shop when it's ready. Yeah. It's so going to have a creative future. It's going to be, and then it'll always be on time. It won't be late. It'll, absolutely. <laughs> so one uh, one big problem, I, I do want to touch on this uh, with you, uh, and I know you participated in, in a, a lot of the work groups and committees on this subject, and that is labor attraction. Uh, Give us. It, it's, it's tough now just finding people, young people to enter into the industry. Uh, it may even be tougher in the future because of the skills gap, because uh, we're going to need a specialized yes. a work on the EVs and, and more being mm-hmm. gas and automated systems. Uh, what, what, uh, what do shops need to do or what does the independent shops need to do about this? Uh, how can they get involved? What do they need to do to help uh, attract and even retain the, the best? <laughs> well, I'm going to put in a plight for the Automotive Reaches Association, first of all, okay. <laughs> to join that. 
you guys have a BC career site. You're, you're already looking at this issue from, from the association level. Um, and then I think as a shop, in conjunction with association and or as an independent, you know, elementary schools have career days that, you know, bring your kid to work day or the, or the parent comes, you know, so you could be, I forget what grade this happened with my kids. It's been a long time, but you know, I went, came and spoke to the class about being at, you know, owning a gas station and, and having bays and stuff. And then, you know, another mom was there and she was a medical doctor and another mom was there. She was a lawyer. Then another dad was there and he was, you know, he was something else, right? So we would talk about that. So what we want to do is we want to get in front of people in the elementary school level. Then what we want to do is get involved in junior high, mid school, depending on what schools, uh, what school district you're in. And then we want to get involved in the high schools. We want to meet with uh, guidance counselors, the people that are in control of these career decisions. And part of our marketing, we're marketing to the parents of kids who are helping their kids make career decisions and stuff like that. So Right. So we're talking a slow burn here, but we're talking, we we have to give all these inputs in there. We then need to talk about, um, you know, uh, having high school tours through our classes, right? The, those I, I know some of my clients have arranged that. I know clients of mine have, uh, when the colleges, so this happened in Alberta, but I bet you it happens at PCIT too. Um, but at SAIT, they had a career day and you were able to have a free table, a free booth at SAIT as an employer, right? So having a booth there as an employer and talking to to the people, to the students that are there, um, you know, even if they're not in a technical career path, you know, just having a booth there to open up that conversation. Yeah. Uh, the other part, Ken, is, you know, of course, opening, making sure that we're uh, welcoming women to this industry, making yeah. sure that we're making it um, welcome uh, for other People on the on on the fringes of society or or racialized people making sure that they're, you know, that they're welcome and that we're taking a look at different learning styles of all individuals, whatever their walk of life is, you know, that part of it. Um, can a couple more thoughts on this? Then I'll turn it back to you. Is is I uh, I've started doing uh, shop tours with my clients. Now we meet on Zoom. Now we used to meet live in person, and I changed it all to a Zoom model. Uh, aside from my three-day smart course, which I'll, you know, I do a few of those a year in person now, but we're on Zoom. So what I'm having an older do is uh, we have a meeting like this, we record it, and they walk through their shop with their phone, and we do a shop tour, right? The outside, the service area, the client area, the bays, and all of that. And, um, you know, I start with volunteers, and it was so funny at least three quarters of them all said, well, I don't want to be first. I want to go back and clean up my shop. And I looked at them all and I said, so at any moment, I couldn't come by your place and have a shop tour. And they were all quiet. And I said, think about it. Can you walk your clients to your shop and be proud of it? Right? Or are you just, you know, are you perpetuating the myth of the, of the greasy shop, right? I said, what about technicians? Um, I was just looking at some pictures from a gorgeous shop that uh, that I work with, and you could eat off of the floor. It's that clean, right? Um, and I'm thinking to myself, if you if you can't record yourself and show your peers your shop, why would you attract the technician? I mean, I'm being a little hard-nosed here, but if we want to attract people, we've got to have the nice places to work, not just, not just a nice culture, but the cleanliness and the rest of it. 
And then one last point, Ken, I know that I could be long-winded, is you're very right about the mix of skills that we're looking for. Because we're looking for somebody who has that mechanical aptitude that can look at something mechanical, take it apart, reassemble it, can understand how it's wearing. But then the ability to use computers, use electronics to diagnose uh, all of that. And maybe shops will be you know, a mix of individuals that are purely technological and mix that are, are more mechanical. Um, I'm kind of seeing that happening now. But I know there's young people out there that have that mix. And it's just a matter of us getting in front of them and saying, hey, we have a perfect place for you to work, where you can have the fun of the hands-on and the fun of the tech at the same time. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, that's an excellent point. It's also the transitional skills. So uh, we're just sort of on the cusp of of the technological revolution in transportation, if you want to call it that. Uh, but even someone coming in now at age 20, it's going to be a different environment at age 40. They're going to have to have that aptitude to be able to transfer into that. Um, and uh, and we need to be on the lookout for that. And I agree with you as well. Uh, it's about changing values. Uh, the old days of the greasy workshop, um, they're gone. Uh, and it's also about uh, flexibility and schedules and a whole host of things. So I think these shops have to uh, adapt to. Yes. Speaking uh, speaking on that, uh, I do worry uh, about the future of the industry. Uh, the bulk of the independents, let's face it, is the mom and pop shops. Uh, young people coming in, taking over for the uh, taking over the family business. Um, we're seeing much more consolidation in the automobile industry in general. Uh, uh, is the future bleak, uh, or is there a future for the the small mom and pop shops? Um, I don't think the future is bleak. Um, we've been in a very adaptable industry. Um, have there been losses and attrition? Have there, has there been pain, um, financial and otherwise? Yes, there has. Um, I would say that we're going to need to, you know, the cost of real estate is really one of our biggest, biggest challenges for, for a small place, how much it costs to lease a building or own a building, you know, in Vancouver itself, we've lost dozens of shops, not because they weren't profitable, but because they could sell it for condos for, you know, and then retire, right. And then just close the place down and then build condos. Um, so a few things, again, back to some fundamentals. You know, the, the existing older group need to be working on their succession plan immediately. It doesn't matter if you're thinking one year or 10, start getting that stuff in place. And I'm very proud to say that that is one of our key things that we're doing. And, and Don, who's joined me, is a, is a business succession plan specialist because he's he sold his shop successfully and did really, really well. So getting that transition to a younger generation of business owners, we're seeing people who are non-automotive buy them. I know of a guy that is in the software world, bought a shop in Ontario. He, he has a software company, but he sees the value in bringing systems and software to an automotive shop. So there's outsiders now looking in at the gross profit opportunity of an automotive shop as a profitable place. So succession plan is the first piece. The consolidation, I think, is going to happen regardless of what we think. I think some of the cons- consolidation that I've seen is very positive. Um, you know, the employees are keeping their jobs when the shops are bought by by some of these groups. Uh, there's more of a career track when you're in a larger group of shops. Now you can work your way up to be, you know, a, a general manager, maybe a territory manager of multiple locations. Um, and But the other part, too, and, and I guess this goes back to your question about other uh, other employment opportunities maybe or, or bringing people in, is is once you hit that 
37 to 40 or 45 and your elbows are sore and your knees are sore from, you know, working on cars and the concrete floors and stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of jobs as parts representatives, technological representatives, technical trainers, um, you know, working with associations. Like there's all kinds of different opportunities out there where this, this could be a really nice career track right until you know, right until uh, until you choose, somebody would choose I, to retire. I absolutely agree with that. And I think this is the message, uh, one of the messages that we really have to get with the young people. Uh, this is a, a career and it can yeah. it can lead into so many different and exciting areas. Um, just because, you, you know, you start off becoming an automotive technician doesn't mean you're going to be doing that in 20 years. It could be something, something else completely. Uh, so just in some final thoughts, Murray, um, what is the one, if, 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 if you could only give one piece of advice to an independent shop that's maybe listening to that now, what would it be? Understand your business, understand your numbers, learn them, know how to move the systems that change them. And if you can do that, you can adapt to whatever technology is approaching you because the business principles are going to be fundamental to whatever happened. Sales are sales. Gross profit is gross profit right? Net is net. Expenses are expenses. And if we keep that under control and learn all of that kind of stuff, I believe we could be hugely profitable in the future. All right. So if somebody uh, wants to get a hold uh, and inquire about your training, how do they get how do they get a hold of you? Well, there's, uh, I don't know if you still do the www. <laughs> but nobody says that anymore. No, I know. Yeah, I know. Anyways, yeah. RPF, rpftraining.net is the website. There's a contact page there or they can email me at murrayvoth at rpmtraining.net. Uh, I answer every single email. I might not answer quickly, hopefully within 24 hours. And um, you can uh, ask me questions if you're a shop owner, business management, and stuff like that. If for whatever reason, as a consumer, you're very curious about what I do and you're looking for a good shop where you live, um, hopefully I can send you to somebody. So um, that would be my pleasure to do that as well. Well, Murray, thank you for uh, joining us on the EV Friendly Podcast. I look forward to seeing you in person. I, I think you'll probably be at our next uh, annual general meeting in yeah. September. Uh, so one of these very rare in-person events that we actually hold these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's going to be in my neighborhood. So uh, I'm going to... Yeah, that's right. It's, sure. it's in your backyard. All right on. Well, thank you. That's awesome. And best of luck. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us for today's podcast. Uh, if you've uh, enjoyed today's podcast, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, and if you don't have time to watch a full uh, video podcast, you can check out our audio podcast uh, on uh, Google, uh, uh, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcast from. Thank you.